friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Thank you for coming back to Conversations with Consequences week after week. We hope we're giving you great conversations. I know that we have wonderful guests. Tragic news out of Turkey and Syria, news that gets more tragic every day. A devastating earthquake has claimed the lives of many thousands. We'll be talking later on in the show with Edward Clancy. He's Director of Outreach for the Aid to the Church in Need for a deeper look at the situation on the ground there. But first, I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my co-hostess, Ashley McGuire. Welcome to the show, Ashley. It's always great to talk with you, Gracie. It's great having a team talk as we try to do every ever so often. We should try to we should do them more often actually. It's so much fun to talk to you. I hope that our listeners also find it fun and informative. Yeah, no, it's always great to bounce ideas off with you and discuss, you know, there's so such a richness of interesting articles and studies out there and so it's it's great to discuss them with you, Gracie. Yeah, and it's I think it's important for us from a Catholic perspective to to have our ear to the ground as it were and paying attention to the different things that are happening in society and in the culture and be able to talk about them and understand them because um, they're affecting all of us. Uh, you know, very often I think we we think that we're living uh, in ways that are very deliberate and thought out and that we're making a lot of decisions in, in a very specific way. But I think what's really happening a lot of the time, and I know what happens to me, is that I'm really just swimming in that same cultural uh, fluid that everyone else, all the other fish in the world are swimming in. And, and a lot of that's just happening to me too, even though I don't realize that. Does, does that ring true to you, Ashley? Yeah, and I think it's important, um, you know, to always be making a concerted effort every day to sort of read outside your comfort zone, for lack of a better lack of better words, um, because I think it is easy to get insular in the way that we live and uh, kind of close our minds off to, you know, <laughs> the the really what's going on in in the culture that we're very much living in. And it can be hard, especially when we're busy moms, you know, to, to sit down and take the time um, to, to read sort of thought provoking pieces and to spend time talking about them and thinking about them with others. So here's a, here's an issue that's, that's interesting to me and to you, I know, and I'm, and I'm sure to our listeners is the rise of spirituality uh, in, in, in the culture as opposed to religiosity. So all of us know that the United States and the greater West is is becoming less and less religious, right? Like organized religion is is dropping adherence right and left. And Catholicism is unfortunately no outlier in this. Um, and uh, people, instead of having, an, instead of adhering to an organized religion like their, fam like their parents did and their grandparents, what people are doing is they're they're being very they're being spiritual because all of us need spirituality in our lives. It's a human necessity. We have to always 
are we are we always have to be thinking of the transcendent and the greater spiritual meaning of our lives. We're just built like that. I think that's just in our DNA, uh, and that's a wonderful thing that that's there. Um, but in the absence of an organized religion and a set of uh, spiritually infused ethics and morals and a, and a and a and a code right that our that our religion gives us and a code to live by and a, and a list of things that 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 we believe that make our existence understandable to ourselves and give us meaning instead of that people are 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 using vague um spiritualities uh new age maybe is a, is a term that we could use new age spiritualities people are doing other things like even hallucinogenics in order to sort of open up that that worldview and that open up that that third eye maybe they have inside people doing yoga people people believing um that the universe somehow uh, wants things for them like if they have optimistic thinking the universe is going to return um sort of like an optimism towards them and is going to going to reward them somehow um ross douthat who's a, a conservative writer at the new york times wrote a piece um talking about this called it was on february 1st be open to spiritual experience also be really careful he took as a starting point and i know you've seen this article ashley he took as a starting point a sculpture that has just been um, installed in the new york state supreme court appellate the appellate division building uh in medicine on madison avenue and it apparently it it takes it it it's there alongside um statues of people like Moses and Confucius so people lawgivers right associated with religions and the statue is of this woman uh, wearing uh, like a lace collar like Ruth Bader Ginsburg she has these giant like afro kind of braids but it also looks a little bit like a medusa head and she's standing oh she has arms that look like um like the the things you use to bake a to make a cake right um what do you call those <laughs> on your on your mixer like mixer arms um oh yeah 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 to make like I, batter I, I, um yeah. you see i'm not a big baker so there's a name for those things and she's standing on like this she's like emerging from like a plant so there's all these all these spiritual references uh, of it's it's feminist it's um pantheistic it's it's um this statue i mean when i saw her arms and like this feminism i it made me think of like abortion instruments but maybe that's just me being medical and 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 pro-life and her head is sort of like almost like demonic because it's it's got these weird braids that make you think of medusa or something really dark and evil um but it's meant to be some sort of spiritual uh, exercise that's supposed to make you feel spiritually and connected to females. So Ross Douthat wrote about that and the dangers of opening yourself up, like the, the good parts of being opening yourself up to spirituality, but also the dark parts. What did, what did you think when you saw pictures of the statue, Ashley? Well, I think, you know, it's funny, all the headlines just straight up call it like demon statue. Um, maybe I was being too kind or too subtle. Well, no, um, yeah, it, it, I mean, what I read was that according to the artist, it was meant to show a fierce woman, um, quote, a form of resistance. Like it's very, it's, it is very much a brazen, has a brazen nature to it. Um, but I think it's sort of sad that that's, uh, become what culturally we think of when we think of, um, I don't know, strong women, 
Um, and, you know, back to your original point about how we're all kind of hardwired for religion, you know, I think we, we do live in a, a sort of post-Christian society, and for Christianity, the, uh, the woman that we idealize is Mary, and she's, you know, there's been articles written about how Mary is the most recognized woman in the world. You know, her face, her statue, and art, um, it's, it's, it's everywhere, but if you deny Christianity, it's in our nature to want to replace her with, you know, and, and before Mary, there was this, you know, in, in Greek and, and mythological cultures, it was, it was the goddess. And so, but our, the sort of neo goddess is scary. Um, but I do think that it's, you know, you can't, you can't either deny Christianity or, or religion altogether uh, without seeing it replaced with something. Mm-hmm. And um, the beauty of Christianity is that that something moors us to um, to beauty and and to goodness. Um, but it is, you know, it is funny. It, it's true. It's everywhere. Like I go to Soul Cycle, and my spinning class sometimes feels like they're trying to make it a spiritual experience. They use all these mantras. Mm-hmm. Um, they use candles. Um, almost like it's its own kind of a mass. There's a ritual to it. There's literally like a litany, like of, you know, the types of songs and the type of exercise. And, you know, thankfully, because I'm a Christian, I know that I'm not here for that. I'm there for the exercise. Right. But they're um, trying, they do try to tap into a spiritual component that is right. inside, that they feel that the teacher feels is inside each of the participants in this spinning class, right? Which is very interesting. You don't see that in sports, for instance, but you do see it in exercise classes. Yeah, and and I've noticed in the culture of food too. That's been sort of infused with this weird. I mean, we call it virtue signaling, but you know, this talk about food taking on a component of uh, virtue. Like, I mean, literally, there's a restaurant in DC that people like called Virtue Feed Grain, as oh. if as if food can have a virtue. And you see, it's like wholesome goodness. I mean, go into a Whole Foods. Again, this is Whole Foods is another place where this sort of semi-spirituality thing is there. If you look around at the little, you know, like artsy mantra things on the walls, they're very sort of spiritual in nature. And food is not spiritual. I mean, what's interesting is that you know, food. Uh, wait, but food it, is spiritual, actually. Uh, right, right. <laughs> but 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 the food that we're buying at the grocery store right, is not, not your the cereal. Food, your cereal the food isn't, that, isn't spiritual. Right. The food that we're going to mass, you know, for for the Eucharist, mm-hmm. the bread of, of life is. And so it's it's so sad. It's like our culture has Okay, but this, but look what they're trying to do at Whole Foods, right? So there's this human so God understands, right, that human beings are spiritual and material. So he, he reveals to us and then he gives himself to us in a way that is spiritual and material, right? So he gives us the Eucharist. And, and in Whole Foods, they're recognizing that same need. And they're giving us the spiritual and the material, right? There's, but they're giving it to us with cereal and, and choosing honest, virtuous food, um, connecting, connecting our inner longings to what we're doing with our grocery cart and how we're spending, you know, what used to be our $150 grocery bill is now 320 but at least we're feeling that we're feeding some spiritual necessity too, right? So they're tapping into that same um, space in, inside our souls, I guess. 
Right. And what I appreciate about the Douthat article, um, and I'll read a quote, he said, start with, start with the broad youthful impulse toward what you might call magical thinking, ranging from the vogue for astrology to the TikTok craze for manifesting desired outcomes in your life. In certain ways, this is an extension of the self-help spiritualities that have been attached to American religion since forever. But right now, the magical dimension is more explicit, connected to old the connection to old-time religion, weak to non-existent. And he goes farther to warn that there's a certain danger in sort of unmoored spirituality. And I think that's so true because th- things are either good or evil, they're right or wrong. And if you're sort of dabbling in spirituality, but it's not tied to the truth and the one true God, the demonic realm is there. I mean, we as Christians say a prayer to St. Michael the Archangel Um, to defend us from the demons that prowl Mm -hmm. about the world seeking the ruin of souls. And, and so you have to be very careful when you get into that spiritual realm. Um, And, you know, another thing he talks about in the article that's so important is when you couple the, this sort of unmoored spirituality with drugs, which is, you know, like, in the city in Washington, D.C., where I just moved from to Maryland, they just legalized hallucinogenic drugs. And I think they've done that in Colorado, too, where I'm from. And so when you're doing like hallucinogenics, tapping into the spiritual realm, but without being tethered to you know, sort of Christian virtue, yikes. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's sort of like a Leviathan dimension that, you know, it's scary out there. Mm-hmm. And and we do understand that there are forces out there, there's spiritual forces out there that are waiting for you to open the door to them. I see one branch of this that I see very often in Miami is something we have here called Santeria, which is a, um, it's a, a kind of cultish religion that, that grew up out of, uh, it's like voodoo, but it's, it's from Cuba and it's, um, it combines some, 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 some elements from African uh, polytheistic, the polytheistic African tradition or pantheistic, and then um, it attaches it to certain Catholic practices. Um, And this is, there's definitely an element of, of, um, a, a terrible element of confusion there, of course, but also an element of opening yourself up to spiritual forces that are not, um, that are not under your control, that, that, can easily invade you and and take possession of parts of you that that don't belong to those forces, right? To the to the dark to the dark forces that do exist out there. And I'll give you an example. Um, I have a friend who was who was dabbling in Santeria, and this is a, maybe three years ago. And she um, she suddenly realized what she was doing. She was sort of drawn into it by a friend at work. And she said, what do I do? And I said, well, let me go ask at the Ermita, which is the, the shrine to Our Lady of Charity, who's the patroness of Cuba, which is near my house. And I went and I asked, and this is this is a place which is very devoted to people from Cuba. It's always full of Cubans and coming to worship Our Lady of Charity. And But they know a lot about Santeria because the, the Santeros come there a lot too because they also have an attachment to Our Lady, which is in a, in a, in a very strange and devi- devious way, but they're attached to her. So they, uh, I went and asked. I said, my friend has been dabbling in Santeria and she needs some kind of exorcism. And she said, oh, well, Father so-and-so, his waiting list is six months long 
to meet wow. with these people who have been dabbling and, and feel and feel da- that they've been touching dangerous things and open themselves up to dangerous things. So that's a very Miami version of uh, something which many people are experiencing by allowing themselves to get untethered from religion, from a way of that's logical and, 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 and orderly and beautiful to look at the transcendent and, and the metaphysical realities of our lives and instead letting themselves sort of flow in these dark currents. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember that, you know, as Christians, we're forbidden from, um, you know, dabbling with things like palm readers, tarot cards. I mean, they're gr- it's a grave sin, and that is because uh, the, you know, the, that dimension of evil. You know, we live in a culture that's so, I don't know what the right word is. It's funny, we want to believe in happy, clappy, you know, the good stuff, um, but not, you know, the, the, the good spirituality while denying sort of the bad spirituality, but it's, it's very much still there and we're in a constant threat of it. And, you know, the Bible is explicit about, you know, wearing spiritual armor and armoring yourself for spiritual battle. Um, and so I was thinking, you know, about this Dalvet article and how it's almost like we've gone through stages, like different stages of post-Christianity. And there was a period where it was sort of, um, you know, more outright denial of this, like, oh, this the, the science is king and this flies in the face of science and any kind of spirituality is is silly um, and, and now we're swinging. And again, I think it's because to go back to what you said in the beginning about the fact that we're, the truth is we're hardwired for spirituality and you can't suppress that. It will find a channel or an outlet to this revival of this neo spirituality. And, you know, he has another good line. He says that there's reason to worry about a society where structures have broken down and a mass of people are going searching without maps or playing around in half belief or deploying against what remains of Christianity symbols that have invoke multiple spiritualities at once. And so, you know, the devil, the devil will um, take advantage mm-hmm, of, this, of, of our mapless state. Right. So we have no map yeah. in our culture right now to look for God, for the transcendent, and, for the metaphysical. And you know what I thought of, too, was um, back right after the Dobbs decision, that group of really sort of radical abortion activists who were going around threatening, you know, like nights of rage. They called themselves Ruth sent us. Um, and I just remember thinking at the time, be careful because you're, you're basically summoning the dead and, you know, that's like Ouija boards, you know, level Mm -hmm. stuff (laughs) saying that, you know, somebody who's dead has sent you to do work. I mean, we believe that somebody who's risen from the dead and, you know, lives in eternal glory has, has dispatched to us. Um, but it's just, you know, that, I just think that was kind of a good example of how, you know, if the devil's agenda is evil and abortion is evil, um, you know, that's dabbling in this weird sort of pseudo spirituality, um, that we're, that we're talking about. Dalsat makes a really good point that what's going on is that people are reacting against our Christian past 
And they are saying that, well, the reason there's prohibitions against things like Ouija boards and the occult and and hallucinogenic opening up to your, you know, <laughs> to, to the spiritual realm um, is because that's a kind of patriarchal white male chauvinism, right? So, oh, the, the church, the, the Catholic Christianity never wanted you to look outside of the fold. They wanted you in your little, in their little pasture, right? And they're just trying to control you. But then he makes the point that, that there's a presumption that the pantheistic or polytheistic traditions were, are automatically going to generate some humane and kindly society. And that's simply not true. Like you can't look out into world history and cultural history and say, oh, if, if we were, you know, like the noble savages and pantheistic and polytheistic and open to all these spiritual ideas without any rules or, or any kind of, you know, understanding of the God as a mono, as one person, that we yeah. would suddenly live in a better society. On the contrary. You know, we would no, be it, like the Aztecs or the that, that ate their children or, you know, and all these terrible societies where human sacrifice was practiced. It's so true. And I, I've been listening to this wonderful podcast that I recommend for um, parents with young children. It's it's done by, um, sh- I think it's called Shining Light Dolls. They do those cute little saint dolls. Um, and it's it's got hundreds of little 10-minute episodes about saint stories for kids and this one that really captured the imagination of my kids i'm embarrassed to say i forget the name of the saint probably a lot of listeners will know who i'm talking about um was a monk and lived at a time when in the you know town that he lived there was this monster it was you know some kind of animal that's now extinct that they called the gargui and it lived outside town and people thought that the way to appease it was to regularly basically present it with a townsperson to eat alive. Okay, but and this, they, is, this is a basic human instinct, right? It's been part of every culture for as long as we have existed. Right, but what's so fascinating is that this monk heard the cries of somebody who was going to be sacrificed to this this monster and went out and said, no, we, you don't appease evil by feeding it. You appease evil by, by fighting it. And so he went... He killed this animal by invoking God, um, and that's why they put the the head of this gargouille on a stake, and it was later that a French architect saw that and decided to incorporate what we now call gargoyles onto cathedrals because it was sort of embodied and symbolized the triumph of good over evil. But you're right that, like, these, these sort of pagan cultures were monstrous, where I, you know, there's a there's a um, a philosopher who writes that basically in every culture there's an element of human sacrifice, mm-hmm. and and look at our culture. I mean, <laughs> thousands and thousands of years later, and human sacrifice is still woven into the fabric of what we define as you know empowerment for women. But mm-hmm. you know, it's it's Christianity um, that you know triumphs over that sort of barbarism well and how interesting that in 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 christianity god wanted for us to to sort of appease that need for sacrifice but turned it into his own sacrifice of himself and then invited us 
to the sacrifice of the mass every single day, right? It's almost, he was saying, okay, I know you've got this dark need. <laughs> for, because right. Maybe because we, we sin, like the dark need comes from the fact that we are sinful, that we know we've done wrong, that something has to be done to atone for it, that we... We carry, we know our brokenness, we know it exists, we feel it in ourselves, we're disappointed in ourselves every day. Um, and then he says, wait, but I'll be the sacrifice, you know, don't sacrifice your children. Don't, right. don't feed the monsters of, of, of life, of, 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 don't feed the monsters of human brokenness with the flesh of your children. You know, feed them with my with my beautiful body, so that I can cure them and solve it and solve it for you and and carry away that pain and that sin. But yeah, you yeah. make such a good point, Ashley. It's, it's human sacrifice. I guess is much more prevalent now than it was before Christianity sought to make away from with it because of the terrible prevalence of abortion. How what a terrible what a sad what a sad reflection. And and then is it any is it any surprise then? That young people who've been brought up in in a in a post Roe age where abortion was completely legal, where human sacrifice was just the price we paid for for sexual liberation, is it is it any surprise that they open their doors to to these dark forces uh, that are they're more open to it? No, and you know I think that it's you know just our conversation is such a reminder of of why the beauty of Christianity and the fact that it, it, it incorporates so many aspects of human nature, but elevates them and mm -hmm. synthesizes them in a logical and understanding mm -hmm. way. Whereas, you know, without, without that, it's all very disorienting. And, and that I think would be the most terrifying, more terrifying than, than not believing in God or any kind of divine purpose would be, opening up to a spiritual dimension with that mindset would be utterly terrifying. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Douthat at the end of his article says, the future of humanity depends on people opening doors to the transcendent rather than sealing themselves into materialism and despair. And, oh, wow, that's so incredibly true, right? Because it, if we don't open ourselves to to the, the true meaning of our lives, right, as created beings um, children of God with certain duties and responsibilities and and also certain possibility this possibility no of, of, of living an eternity with in, in fellowship with God then then we're sunk into materialism and despair and yet and yet it's it's a door that has to be opened very carefully as he says absolutely well thank you Ashley for joining me today on conversations. And uh, thank you to our listeners for joining us as well. Thanks, Gracie. and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the Encore at 5 p.m. 
We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Conversations with Consequences. We love our listeners. We love to have you. We hope that these conversations have consequences for you, wonderful consequences that make you grow and make you happy and inspire you. Now we focus on the tragic news out of Turkey and Syria, news that gets more tragic every day. A devastating earthquake has claimed the lives of many thousands. Now we turn to Edward Clancy. He's Director of Outreach for the Aid to the Church in Need for a deeper look at the situation on the ground there. Welcome to the show, Edward. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Edward, um, it's almost unimaginable of what's going on in Turkey and Syria with this terrible earthquake. But it's it's only the first in, I'm, I'm sorry, it's only the last in, in a series of great tragedies that have taken place in this region. That, that is absolutely correct. Um, I mean, if we look back to recent history, within the last decade, a little bit over a decade, we, it was started with the Civil War. And for the Christian communities, the Civil War isolated them. And then when Assad, when there was sanctions against Assad, they were, in a sense, very severely compromised because they were not able to do the normal things that would keep them going. So that would be the second thing that happened. And then you have, of course, the rise of ISIS and then the you know sequestering or taking of certain territory and, and Christians were forced to flee. And then you go to a few years ago with the tragedy in Lebanon, and now Lebanon and Syria are so directly linked in so many ways, both in communities and also uh, financial situation. Lebanon has always been used as a way of getting help into Syria during this time. But then there was the collapse of the Lebanese economy, and there was also you know, the explosions mm-hmm. at the, the port, which devastated the Christian community. And then now, after all of these things, we have the earthquake. Um, so, you know, when we look at it from, you know, say, uh, 30,000 feet or so, we can see that not only do you have a community that's been devastated many times over, you also have a diaspora community. You do have people in Syria who've relocated from other places where they thought it was more dangerous and now are going to be going through again, either another relocation and, or, you know, suffering great, uh, great loss in, in life and property. So it, it, it's a very difficult time for the people of Syria and, and in particular, the Christian community there. What about uh, Turkey? How do you see the situation in Turkey in relation to the Christian peoples there? Well, if we look at Turkey, Turkey is a study in what we don't want to happen to the church in the Middle East. Um, if you go to the readings in the Gospels and the, the New Testament, you'll see a lot of the areas of Turkey were very Christian. In fact, um, you know, a century ago, the, the, popula- the Christian population in Turkey would have been about a quarter or a third. Now it's under 2%, maybe even under 1%. Oh, that's amazing. Um, I had no so idea been, that that had been yeah. such a steep decline so quickly. Yes, well, part of it is because of what happened. A large part of those communities were Armenian. Mm-hmm. And so during the Armenian genocide, they were either driven out or died. Yes. Um, and then, of course, you had the Syriac and uh, Assyrian Christians who also were in the region who died alongside the Armenians or, uh, like them, were forced out. Uh, you know, And obviously, like what happened with ISIS, when armies or armed militants 
come into your region and they're targeting Christians, people leave. Of course. So that is what happened historically in Turkey. So the church in Turkey is very small. Now, Turkey was uh, was affected much great, in a greater way than Syria because the epicenters seem to be right within their, re- their uh, borders. Um, so there is going to be a greater loss of life and damage. Um, but, you know, for us as, uh, you know, a Catholic organization and working through the international Catholic community, there's little capacity there to, to help other than, you know, in a small way. Mm-hmm. Because if we try, the, the community would be overwhelmed. The numbers of people, both the fact that they would be affected and then to try to get aid through them would be very difficult. Whereas in Syria, it's a little bit different. Syria, for us, you have uh, a large Christian community. And in fact, there has been a a steep decline in population, um, that at least a third of the population, Christian population, is gone. It could be more uh, since the rise of, you know, we would say the rise of ISIS. But maybe if you go back to the beginning and say, even the the incursions, the wars in Iraq, et cetera, that have seemingly affected um, the Christian communities in a much greater way uh, because when there was armed combatants in the region, uh, it always seems that you know the Christians are in the middle of things. Uh, it's both good and bad because they are communicators, but they are also unfortunately uh, in the way of what some uh, some groups might want, and that causes a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. And in Syria, there are several towns which were affected by the earthquake with significant Christian populations, correct? That's towns that like Aleppo correct. and Homs and oh. Latakia, if, I'm, if I am uh, pronouncing right. those correctly. Yes. So the, 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 it seems, again, we have a representative literally on, on site as we speak, visiting some of the different places. So Latakia, uh, Homs, not so, so much so, Hama, more so, mm-hmm. and um, Aleppo. Now, Aleppo, for historical purposes, was on the Silk Road. It was a major trading port. And in fact, for much of Syria's existence, Aleppo was even more important than Damascus because of its connection with the outside world. Uh, It would be like New York compared to Washington, D.C., in a sense. Um, And so Aleppo has always been a center of cultural exchange, a center of commerce, um, and a, a true center of, of Christianity. And so in Aleppo, back when um, when ISIS and ISIS was attacking and there were all sorts of these problems back in 2015, um, we had had Archbishop uh, Jean Bart, the uh, Melkite Archbishop of Aleppo, visiting with us for the 100th anniversary of um, the Armenian genocide, and also to talk about what's going on in, in Syria at the time to the Christian community. And while he was here, the uh, his cathedral was, was attacked. And, you know, literally, you know, you could see him talking on the phone to people in Syria as the attacks were happening. And at during one of those attacks, um, Father Dehar, who just passed away uh, in the earthquake, was wounded. And in fact, because of shrapnel, lost sight of one eye. Um, so when I heard of his passing, even though I've never met him, I had a, a connection, you know, a sense mm-hmm. that, uh, oh, I remember him, yes, <laughs> you know, I remember who he is. And you have this sort of, remember praying for him that uh, Archbishop Jean Bard had during conversations and gatherings that we organized had asked people to pray for a priest, as he put it, a priest of his, of his uh, diocese, um, who was injured. Um, and unfortunately, you know, he, he did not survive. Uh, the Archbishop Jean Bart did, 
although, you know, he is, I, I believe he's just around 80 years old and of course suffered to an earthquake. So, you know, we always have to wonder mm-hmm. um, that pray for him essentially just because, you know, he's, he's older and he's a you know, strong mind and, and will, but obviously, when things like this happen, it can be very detrimental to his health. Well, even if he escaped unscathed physically, I'm sure the the, the horror of of so much suffering and death around him and, and affecting his community mm-hmm. is is a terrible a terrible spiritual burden on him and psychological. So we'll definitely pray for yes. him. Edward, tell us yes. about aid to the church in need. Tell us about your organization. Sure. Well, in a way, um, we are we were born of a situation of displaced population back in the 19, late 1940s after World War II. And at that time, there was a German community or German communities that were pushed back into Germany from other countries outside of Germany. And because of their displacement, it caused them to be in, in severe financial problems. So we responded to Pope Pius's call to help this, these communities. In Germany, and that was the beginning of our organization, and later when we started helping mainly priests who were seeking to, um, you know, people, uh, vocation support, so seminarians, because during World War II, many vocations were delayed or ended. Um, So we helped that, and then we started helping all across the world in places where Christians were persecuted or suffering. So it started in in Eastern Europe, and then it expanded out into Africa, Asia, etc. And now we work in over 100 countries each year. And we support about 150 to 160 million dollars in projects, all based on small donations. We don't receive any uh, internationally. This is um, we don't receive any any direct support from any government agency or you know these large uh, corporations because uh, we we base our efforts on providence and on the teachings of the church. So it makes it difficult sometimes. And so uh, we have a long history in Syria um, that was you know. Modest, if you look back 25 years ago, supporting vocations and minor projects. And then since 2010, it has expanded in Syria greatly. Um, since 2011, I believe we've sent in about $55 million, maybe $60 million in aid, and all sorts of different programs supporting uh, Christian communities, supporting the vocations, and supporting um, medical and schooling projects uh, for the community as they were affected by the, the, the things I, I talked about before, you know, the attacks of ISIS, the civil war, uh, economic collapses, and uh, now the, late, the latest uh, earthquake problems. So we, we have a great connection to the church there and a constant communication. So it helps us greatly when something like this happens because we get to respond by listening to the people literally on the ground who are, are firsthand taking care of the people. And and now in the face of this of this terrible tragedy in Syria, what what is the church? Uh, what is aid to the church in need doing physically? What's the what's your material help at this time? Well, initially we we started with accepting or talking to some of our partners on the ground about projects of supporting uh, food distribution, blankets, um, milk, baby formula, and things like that. And we we will do that. But we realized very quickly that there are a lot of aid organizations that are moving to do that immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we've seen now, as we saw in Iraq, and we have a sort of a plan of action that we can build from there, that the Christian communities will be uh, very affected by the loss of housing. And this is an opportunity for the loss of the Christian community because they will seek 
other places to go uh, to live safely. And if it's outside Syria, we could see a great loss of, a, of, the, of the Christian community there, and that would be a tragedy. So what we will do is we will respond through the local church to help Christians uh, relocate or rebuild their homes uh, within Syria. So there will be an effort to uh, engage engineers, as I mentioned. Um, we have an experience with this back in Iraq during the um, the bloody trails of ISIS. After that was over, Christian communities, Nineveh Plains, had to be rebuilt, and aid to the church in need was on the, the, the front lines of that. We helped to organize the Nineveh Plains Rehabilitation and, and Rebuilding Project, which brought together experts in the fields from the region, as well as different faith communities uh, in the Christian church, to rebuild these uh, seven or eight uh, towns that were devastated by ISIS and the attacks. So we will use that experience and um, what we learned from there to do something similar now in Syria, and that we will put together the people that are needed to help these uh, Christian families to see if their homes are safe, to help them stabilize and repair, and help them get, get back in place. And then there might very well be an opportunity for us to do small sort of micro-projects to help them rebuild their lives, uh, re-support, because there is the possibility that if you had a certain life before the earthquake, that life might not be available to you to go back to after. You may have to retrain or refocus uh, what you do. So we would like to help the Christian community in those opportunities. Edward, in your view, why why should the Christian community stay in Syria? Why is it important that, that Christianity keep its presence there? Because I know people listen to, I'm sure people listen to you and they say, well, this, this is just not a place for Christians to live, possibly. Yeah, uh, well, I, I would say that, you know, what we learn from Jesus is that we will always be persecuted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just that fact alone means that we're going to be in a world where there's going to be persecution, not that we should seek it out. But what's important about Christian communities is wherever there is a Christian presence, there is more peaceful, peaceful existence. We've seen that in places like Iraq. We've seen that in places like Lebanon. I think Lebanon, you can go to a place like Tripoli where the, the, the community of Christians is like 2%. And yet they live peacefully among the Muslims. And one of the reasons there is because they're, they're trusted. They are the experts. They are the peacemakers. They are the teachers. They are the professionals. They oftentimes are the people that taught a lot of the, uh, the, the upper echelon of the people in, in Tripoli in their schools. So you see that, the, that not only do we serve a purpose you know, for the functioning of a society, but that the presence is important. The other thing is, is that you know, this is this is where the church was founded. I mean, there's no you cannot read the gospel and not be touched by some story that connects itself to the region. And in fact, Syria is credited for being the place where Christians were first called Christians. So just on that historical basis alone, you would say that's not something we should just look past and say it's it's history or a museum fact. Um, the other thing is that these people want to stay. It, it is it is not that they are looking to leave, you know, at, at the drop of a hat. No, they're, they're forced to leave. Mm-hmm. So the goal for us is always going to be to help them to stay if it's, if it's possible. And I think it is possible, and I think it's, it's very good. And the next thing would be to help them give them the footing so that they can not only stay, but they can, in a sense, thrive. And for, to the church, need that's an important uh, objective and goal. 
And Edward, how can our listeners help Aid to the Church in Need in this moment and also in your other endeavors all across the world? So if you visit us at churchinneed.org, you'll see that we will have regular updates on the news. As I mentioned, we have somebody literally in the region. We're in constant communication with the different faith communities. Uh, and that goes across the board from, you know, the Catholic Church as well as the Orthodox Church and uh, some of the Protestant denominations because of the respect that AIDS of the Church in Need has had working in places like Syria and then many years uh, inside behind the Iron Curtain where we were working with all Christians. So churchinneed.org is a place, a good place for understanding what's going on, a good place to hear the Christian voices that are in the region. And of course, if you are called to give, please uh, help the Christians in, in, in Syria and other places. I mean, there are many, many other communities we could talk about, you know, whether it's Ukraine or Nigeria or, you know, so many more that, that really need our, our prayer support and our financial support. Well, thank you so much, Edward Clancy, Director of Outreach for the Aid to the Church in Need, for giving us a deeper look at what's going on in Turkey and Syria and how it impacts uh, terribly our Christian brothers and sisters. And we will pray for your for your good work. And, and please, listeners, go to the website and, and learn more. And, and perhaps you can contribute also to Aid to the Church in Need. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when we will enter more deeply into one of the most important dialogues that's ever taken place. Every three years, we have the chance to ponder at Sunday Mass Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We begin with the Beatitudes, which we considered two weeks ago. Then last week, we pondered our identity as salt of the earth and light of the world. This Sunday, we get into the heart of the Sermon on the Mount which Jesus calls us to live by a special set of Christian standards, a higher set of principles than the norms of the good pagans who love those who love them, and higher than the standards even of the Jews most rigidly observant to the Mosaic law. Unless our holiness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus stresses, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the stakes can't be higher, and what he's going to tell us is too important to ignore. The Sermon of the Mount, Jesus sets out seven different ways that as his disciples, our holiness is supposed to surpass others. He gives us five this Sunday and the final two next week. These marks of Christian behavior go beyond merely keeping the natural law of the Ten Commandments. They're meant to transform our heart and our whole life from the inside out. They challenge us not just to be good, but genuinely holy and Christ-like. All are challenging. But we need to remember that by calling us to these high standards of ordinary Christian living, Jesus is showing us an exhilarating confidence that we, together with his help, can live up to them. The first standard Jesus teaches us this Sunday involves the whole way we treat others. He says it's not enough for us not to murder someone. We need to refrain also from the thoughts that set us on the path to maim and murder our brothers. Jesus tells us if you're angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. If you insult a brother and sister, you'll be liable to the council. If you say you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. We are called, in short, to love others from the heart and head outward. 
We don't love others if all we do is not kill them. If we're envious, jealous, uncomplimentary, or vengeful within, we're still not loving them. To enter into Jesus' kingdom, to become holy, we can't kill with our hearts or tongues either. The first standard to which Jesus calls us is to love our neighbor like Christ loves us. The second standard to which Jesus calls us is to make the first move in reconciling ourselves with those from whom we have been alienated, either by our sins or their sins. When you're offering your gift at the altar, Jesus tells us, if you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled with your brother and sister, and then come and offer your gift. Jesus saying to us that it's not sufficient for us to be merely good with God. We also have to be good with others. When we come to pray and ask God's forgiveness, we must examine first whether others have something against us. If they do, Jesus tells us that we need to make the first move to go and reconcile, even if we've been the one aggrieved, just like God made the first move in reconciling us when we had sinned against him. So the second standard is to be reconciling, just like Christ came into the world mercifully to reconcile all things to his Father. The third standard to which Jesus calls us is truly to be pure of heart. It's not enough for us not to commit adultery in the flesh, he says. We need to avoid the thoughts that lead to adultery. Jesus states, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus implies that even sacramentally married spouses can be adulterers with each other if they allow lust for each other to invade their marriage. But this standard of purity applies to everyone. Those who use pornography or give in to lustful thoughts become serial adulterers in the heart. Lust, as St. John Paul II taught, changes the entire intentionality of a human person from a giver to a taker, from a protector to a predator, from someone who sacrifices his own desires for another's good to someone who consumes another for his or her own gratification. Jesus wants us, rather, to become truly pure of heart, and through prayer, self-discipline, the sacrament of confession, and other graces, he will help us. The third standard is to be pure of heart and see and reverence God and others rather than try to use them. The fourth standard is about the indissolubility of marriage. Jesus says anyone who divorces his wife causes her to commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Later on, Jesus explains why. Because in marriage, God joins a man and a woman for the rest of their life in one flesh. What God has joined, not all, even all the family court judges in the world can divide. Some may tragically need for legal reasons to seek a divorce, to protect themselves or their children from an abusive spouse or one who's behaving in such a way, like foolishly wasting joint resources, that the future of the children is put at risk. But that civil action of divorce doesn't break the one flesh union created by God, which lasts until death. It's easy for us to try to dismiss Jesus' standards and live by Liz Taylor's standards. Many in our culture do. Even some Christian churches have caved in. But we need to open ourselves to the help God gives men and women to remain faithful to the covenant with each other and with God in poverty or prosperity, in sickness or health, in good times or in worse times, all the days of their life. The fourth standard is to model our life on Christ the bridegroom's faithful and indissoluble love for the church's bride. The final standard Jesus mentions this Sunday is about our truthfulness. He tells us that we're not to take oaths because we should be so transparently truthful that we have no need to do so. 
Rather than behaving like people who to be believed have to say, I swear to God, or cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Jesus wants our yes to be yes and our no to be no. We live in the midst of a culture that lies all the time, of politicians like George Santos, who totally invent a resume, of press spokesmen who spin rather than tell the truth, of deep fakes, of so many who don't keep their word and promises, of others who say only what they think others want to hear. Jesus says that everything other than total sincerity and honesty is from the devil, the father of lies. Jesus, who is truth incarnate, wants his followers to be distinguished as people who never lie, whose word is immediately believed because we would rather die than lie. Jesus calls us to a standard of full-time truthfulness and transparency and will help us courageously keep it. Next week, we'll take up the other two things that Jesus says are meant to distinguish us from others, which are perhaps the most challenging requirements of all, to respond to those who treat us in an evil way by turning the other cheek, and to love even our enemies and pray for our persecutors. But today, the church wants us to focus on these five ways we're meant to emulate Jesus and have our behavior surpass good pagans and religiously observant Jews, to love like Jesus, reconcile like Jesus, be pure like Jesus, be faithful like Jesus, and to be truthful like Jesus. Jesus came to fulfill the law of God the Father and wants to help us to fulfill it too. He wants this conversation on Sunday to be truly consequential. If we hear and heed what he's asking and respond to the help he gives, especially in the Holy Eucharist and Confession, he will assist us to become, through what he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, more and more like him, more fully human and more divine. And that's the path of true happiness in this world and forever. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 